0: folks for us and we're going to dive in in this morning's if you take a look at Genesis 41 and we're going to read the entirety of that chapter this morning you'll see that it's a little bit longer than usual and if you're looking for a big idea that emerges out of that passage it's something like this the providence of God is the more we examine scripture perfectly obvious the providence of God the more that we examine scripture seems perfectly obvious Uh, a couple of years ago at the height of the marvel superhero movie deal i went to the comic book store it's right by my barber shop and i walked in there and started talking to the people behind the counter and got sucked into their world a little bit i always love hearing people talk about the things they're passionate about i bought a couple of comic books and read them and enjoyed it maybe not my scene but it was a fun thing to kind of peek in for a while And you discover after only a few minutes of engaging the people who find this as their most passionate hobby and the thing that they spend a lot of their free time doing is just how immensely creative that community is, not only the people who uh, enjoy reading those books, but maybe especially the people who write and do all of the illustrations for all of the comic books, which is why it's always baffling to me that maybe the most famous of all the superheroes, right, who is Superman, has... In a baffling way, the least creative disguise available, right? Uh, So I know Superman goes back to like the 30s or 40s, somewhere back in that time, but there had to be a creative meeting in a room somewhere where somebody said, you know, uh, Superman's kind of different in that his real identity is Superman and that his secret identity is Clark Kent. That's how he disguises himself. So how are we going to disguise him? Ah, I know somebody says, let's give him a pair of glasses. And now, no one will know. And we've been playing along with this for like 75 years. Ah, who are you? Superman. Nope. Where did he go, right? How does that make any sense whatsoever? It should be immediately obvious to anyone who's paying any kind of attention. Yeah, that's still you, right? I get the exact same reaction from Genesis chapter 41, uh, God walks in and he's wearing a pair of glasses, but we know exactly who it is. His providence is obvious. It's hard to find a single verse in the entirety of the chapter where we don't see God himself explicitly working in the life of Joseph, in the life of Egypt, and in the history and markings of the world. So we start in Genesis 41, verse 1. We're asking a couple of questions as we've been moving through this series, this brief series here in the life of Joseph. What do we learn about who God is from Joseph, and who do we understand God to be as he's revealed himself here in his providential workings? Let's read a paragraph or so at a time, make some observations first. Verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass, and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk, and behold, after them sprouted up seven ears Thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Just a couple of observations here. And if you make marks in your Bible, which I am having a cataclysmic personal shift on what it means to write in your bible i'm just going to say this i've done one thing for like 30 years and now i'm kind of it's a whole thing we'll talk about it later <laughs> but if you make marks or write in your bible just a notation here after two whole years how long has joseph been in prison how long has he endured unjustly a fate that he didn't deserve How long has he remained faithful and obedient and ready to do the work of God, whatever that may be, as it incurs in his life? Two whole years. He's been waiting. He's been faithful the whole time. Two years of faithfulness. Two years of obedience. Wherein we learn that the race of faith is a marathon and it's not a sprint and that the fruit of obedience is not always immediately available. Um, We had a guy I went to high school with, moved into a house in California, right? Um, Planted a lemon tree. This was in the spring. And a couple of days ago, he went on Facebook, and he was angry that the lemon tree hadn't brought him any lemons yet. I planted this thing like six months ago. How come I don't have fresh-squeezed lemonade? And a couple of our horticulturally-minded friends were like, hey, it's going to take a while, right? Right? Uh, the tree has to grow, and the soil, and the light, and all that God does and making the tree do its thing. You're not going to get lemons for a couple of years. That's how this works. I, I can't imagine going home and throwing a pumpkin seed into the ground and saying, I hope this is ready for Halloween, right? This is going to take some time. You go to the gym, you do a sit-up. You're not handsome overnight, right? This, this is a time, well, maybe some of us are, but anyway. He's been forgotten. But God remembers him. He remembers him all along. And it's going to be necessary that we bring Joseph to the front because in verse 8 we find that Pharaoh is helpless. In the morning, his spirit is troubled and he calls for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams and no one could interpret them to Pharaoh. The guy at the top, the guy with all the power and all the influence, the guy who can take all of those people that he's displeased with and immediately put them into prison or worse, Can't find anyone who's able to touch these two dreams that he's just had. Enter Joseph, starting in verse nine. Then the chief cupbearer, and we remember him from a couple of weeks ago. The chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember. I remember, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. Joseph, you know about these dreams. And, and there was a young Hebrew there with us. Now, here's our first great providential phrase in the entirety of Genesis chapter 41. There was a young Hebrew there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream, and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. So already here, the Joseph, the young Hebrew, is remembered by the chief cupbearer. God is working providentially. Again, he's arranging these events. Then in verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Uh, This is the second time Joseph has been imprisoned, the first time by his brothers. He was sold into slavery, right? Uh, This is the second time, and it's fascinating. The exact same verbiage used here for Joseph's imprisonment is the same that was used of him being cast into a dry cistern so many years earlier. He's brought out of the pit. Similarly, it was God who brought him out of the pit the first time, and it's not Pharaoh, it's God who's brought him out of the pit the second time. We understand that God is still providentially working here in the life of Joseph. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Stop right here. I want you for the rest of the chapter to start making a mental list of how many times Joseph deflects the opportunity to receive personal glory. Just start, make a little asterisk, make a little mark, find how many different times Joseph is given an opportunity to make much of himself, to take glory for himself to make him look good, to build his own resume, to brand himself as the guy, and chooses proactively to uh, deflect. Okay, just start keeping that running tally. We'll come back to that. Joseph answered, verse 16, all of his maturity coming to bear here in the moment of crisis, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile, Seven cows, the thin ones ate them. Then there were stalks, right, and they were overtaken. Then I awoke into verse twenty-one, verse twenty-two. Uh, there with the the grain, verse twenty-four, and the thin ears swallowed up. But there was no one who could explain it all to me. He says at the end of verse twenty-four, no one, no one had the power, no one had the authority, no one had the inherent promise to be able to describe to me what it is that's happening. Now, Joseph knows that God is in charge. We've already seen a hint of this. And this is why what he says in verse 16 comes across so clearly and emphatically in what follows. God is explicitly referenced over and over and over again. So get ready. If you have your pen or pencil, this is where we start making that list as abundant as it possibly could be. Verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do, right? Who is giving the dream? God is. Who is going to interpret the dream? God is. Who is the one who is bringing about the events that this dream portends? God is. Joseph is saying all three of those things. The seven good cows are seven years and in the seven good years and seven years and the dreams are one and the seven lean and ugly cows that come up after them are seven years and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine so he says your fat cows, seven good years your skinny cows, seven bad years you understand how this works verse 28, it is as I told Pharaoh, occurrence number two God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do Who gives the dream? God does. Who interprets the dream? God does. Who is bringing about events in world history? God is. It's a God story, Joseph says. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Who gives the dream? He says for the third time, God does. Who is interpreting the dream for you? God is. Who is changing the events in the course of world history? God is. And he is so confident in the work that God is doing. He is so sure that it is God and God's plan that's being wrought out here over the life of Egypt, that he starts laying out a plan for Pharaoh, starting in verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. At no point, and we know that Joseph is going to be this guy, at no point does he say, hey, I know exactly what you need to do. Hire me and I'll take care of everything, Right? You just, find, find you a wise man. Go find you somebody who's capable to the task. And then let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And then let them gather all the food of the good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and then let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt. So that the land may not perish through the famine. It's a fairly ingenious idea, right? It seems simple enough to us, but then again, I've not been manager over Potiphar's house, let alone the land of Egypt. You're going to store up over seven good years for the seven bad years. And when this famine hits, and we know historically this famine did hit, and it didn't just hit in Egypt. It was a drought that scorched the earth from Spain all the way to the middle of Asia, right? There were millions and millions of people who were exposed to this hardship of not being able to find any food in this era. Egypt, Pharaoh, your house, your people, they'll be taken care of because you will have prepared. What's fascinating in all this is even that advice is coming from God. Joseph can't help but to see God in all of this. He's like the person standing in the room in the presence of Clark Kent and Clark Kent has his glasses on, and he's going, how come all of you guys can't see? That's Superman! Don't you see he's right here? He's the one working. He's the one engaged. One Old Testament scholar named Benno Jacob writes, the decisive element is the form which Joseph gives his interpretation and to which the commentators have given no attention. He uses the word God. Joseph began God. God may give Pharaoh a favorable answer, not I. He goes from the prison to the throne of the king, and this is his first word. The speech is as pious as it is frank. He is aware of God, and he's humble and fearless at the same time. Even a king is nothing compared to God. We are not told Pharaoh's reaction to this. Then after reporting his dreams, Joseph begins his interpretation. It also starts with what word? God. And it ends with what word? God if we understand who Joseph is we understand who his God is because he gives all the credit for what's happening to God both in the giving and the dream in the interpretation of the dream in the execution of what will happen actually in the world and even in the plan that's God given to address how the nation might survive and how other peoples of the earth might be drawn to Egypt for their own survival it's all God his agenda, his plan, his providence, his hand reaching down for good in history. Verse 37. Now, God is obviously involved. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. I bet it did please all of his servants. If no one had been able to find an answer, I wonder how many of them would have ended up dead. Like the chief baker, gone, separated, right? His uh, head was uh ed from his, right, Michaels. And he, Pharaoh said to his servants, uh, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Even Pharaoh's starting to understand who this is. Fascinating thing from somebody who claimed himself to be divine, right? He understands that this is coming from outside of him. This is a whole other degree of power and influence. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, There is none so discerning and wise as you are, so you'll be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command, only as regards the throne, where only I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See that I have set you over the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his own hand and put it in Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. There was a day when Joseph wore a coat of many colors and it was torn off of his back. And now God in his providence has clothed Joseph all over again in even more splendid things. And he made him to ride out in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt, right? Who gets in? You decide. Who's let out? You decide. Now, think of what's going to happen here in just a few verses, because there are some other people that Joseph knows. He's worked in a couple of circles during his life. He has a father. He has some brothers. His brothers have family. These are God's chosen people living in the land of israel and the same famine that's about to hit egypt is about to hit them as well and where will they go well you know we've heard a rumor that while we weren't prepared there's a man who's interpreted some dreams for pharaoh the leader of egypt they have food you see for seven years they've been taking a fifth of all the grains that come in and storing it up maybe we should go there and who will decide whether or not we're let in well, they don't know yet, but that man is Joseph, right? The one that they exiled to Egypt as a sold slave is now the one who determines whether or not they are let into Egypt that he might provide for them as their savior. Pharaoh called Joseph's name uh, zephanath Peni'a, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of Odin. And so Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. He's finally been elevated. It's been something of a roller coaster ride. We've seen him sold into slavery after being elevated by his father. We've seen him elevated in the house of Potiphar only to be cast out under noxious, unholy accusations. We've seen him faithful in prison but forgotten. And now, in the greatest moment of possibility for obedience and faithfulness in his life, he proves true. God elevates him and at no point has he taken credit for any of it so we find this play out now even further in verse 46 Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh king of Egypt and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh went through all the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years the earth produced abundantly and he gathered up the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and he put food in cities and he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sea, excuse me, like the sand of the sea, until he couldn't even measure it any longer, for it couldn't be measured. And before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potifar, a priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said. God has made me forget all my hardship and all that happened in my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Interesting names, these two names. Uh, Alan Ross, the great uh, Old Testament theologian and commentator, says, the names are a witness that the great statesman of Egypt remains bound to the God of his fathers. He gives them Jewish names. And he gives them very specific name. It's Manasseh. Um, for our Hebrew nerds in the audience here, it's a PL participle, right? God is the one who is causing me to forget, right? Manasseh, forget. A- and then similarly here for Ephraim, God is the one who has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He has helped me not remember all of the great tragedies of my past and he has helped me to instead focus on the great fruitfulness of what's happening before me even this day. It's about forgetfulness and fruitfulness, these two names. You can see here already, God is working in the heart of Joseph to get him ready for what's going to happen next. Because what happens next? His family shows up. Is evil, jealous, unholy ungrateful unwitting family is going to show up and you wonder if God hadn't granted him a measure of forgetfulness and hadn't given him the gift of instead focusing on the fruitfulness of today if his heart wouldn't be ready to do the next thing right of course he remembers what happened but his heart is softening so that he can do the next thing in faithful obedience. Well, verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. And it's just as Joseph has said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. And just putting here parenthetically, there's a very interesting, um, there's an interesting note here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that mirrors very similarly the words that Mary gives to uh, the servants at the wedding of Cana, uh, go to Jesus and do whatever he tells you to do. It's almost exactly the same verbiage, just throwing in there anecdotally. I make no point about that. We'll talk about types and any types another day, but fascinating things happening here in the life of Joseph. So when the famine had spread, verse 56, over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And moreover, and here's our great leading uh, question for what will happen next, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy a grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. God has used Joseph to this point not only to bless Potiphar, not only to bless the cupbearer to the king, not only to bless Pharaoh, and not only through Pharaoh to bless all of Egypt. God is going to use Joseph to change the events of history because it's through his wisdom applied in Joseph's life in Egypt that all the peoples of the world are going to be able to gather here And have food in the time of famine. A seven-year-long famine. If we go back to Genesis chapter 12 and we find the promise, and it's repeated in Genesis 15 and 17 and 21 and 22, that I'm going to use the Israelite people, the sons of Abraham, to be a blessing to the entirety of the earth, that is happening now. In Genesis chapter 41, before we're out of the first book, God is making good on his promise, not only to bless them, but to use them to be a blessing to everyone else. This Jewish man, sold into slavery, is raised up in Pharaoh's house. He's had two sons and given them Jewish names, and now he's going to be the hope of the Jewish people, for he alone can let them in to feed them the bread that comes from his hand. What do we learn about Joseph? We learn this. Joseph is the model of someone who is faithfully obedient at the bottom and at the top. He's faithfully obedient at the bottom and at the top. He was in prison. He was unjustly treated horrifically by his brothers. He was unjustly Accused by Potiphar's wife. He has been maligned though his character has been spotless and in the midst of all of that he is faithful. You want to find a mature believer today, find someone who has been beaten down unjustly and remains faithful. Someone at the bottom who has had it all taken away. Who by all of our human standards deserves every accolade and still is at the bottom and is remained faithful. That's a real mark of maturity. Similarly, find someone at the top who remembers that all that they have isn't of their own work and of their own control, but comes explicitly from the providential hand of God. This, in fact, may be even harder, may be even harder to be faithfully obedient when you have it all than when you have nothing and Joseph models both of these for us because it's not about him. At no point does he want any credit. I, I can't tell you how many times he gives credit to God, right? Uh, starting all the way back in verse 16, it's not in me. God will give through. Verse 25, The dreams of Pharaoh 1, God has revealed. 28, God has shown what he's about to do. Verse 32, it's fixed by God. God will bring it about even in the names of his kids. God's caused me to forget. God's the one who's brought fruitfulness into my life. God is the one, according to Joseph, who has orchestrated everything to bring about the goodness and his glory in Joseph's life. God gets all of the credit. I wonder if Joseph had been born in the era of the New Testament if he wouldn't have especially loved the things that Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. and the life that I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To be a believer means foundationally this. You understand this? And this is great for our folks who are in their 70s and their Great for the ones who are seven and under, right? To follow Jesus Christ means to embrace at a foundational level. You ready for this? It is not about you, it is not about your agenda, it is not about your aspirations, it is not about your dreams. You have been crucified with Christ. And now you live as Christ in you. His ambitions, his desires, his affections, his dreams being realized over the entirety of the earth and specifically in your life. What happens in you, young and old believers? is being wrought by the hand of God himself. Give up every small ambition. Relent in joy to the providence of God. Now, it's interesting how God equips Joseph. He does incredible things. But Joseph understands that Every gift that he has, every power that he's used, none of it is his. All is from God's hand. He gets no credit. I love this. Because we live in one of the weirdest times, I think, in church history. Um, We live in the era of the celebrity pastor. You know this, right? Right? The people who have websites that are just theirname.com and they write study Bibles and they put their name on it, it has always creeped me out. Bob's Study Bible. All of their ministries are named after them. They have huge fan bases and they rebrand every couple of seasons. And you go to all the big conferences and it's the same dozen people over and over again. What an extraordinarily weird thing to find any kind of self-aggrandizing celebrity for people who profess to follow Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be internationally or nationally to hold true to even in churches like this one. This is why I love the people who do all the work and take none of the credit who don't care if their name goes on anything, who don't care if they're recognized, who don't care if they don't receive the adulation for all of their hard work and effort. Um, The summer before my senior year of high school, I went to Albania, and I worked at an orphanage with the Christian college that I would later attend. There was a missionary there. Her name was Nadine Hennessy. And I doubt that anyone in this room has really ever heard of Nadine Hennessy. She's a fascinating woman. Uh, She graduated from Little Christian College and married a man uh, right after graduation who had gone to another Little Christian College, 22 years old. He had read about Jim Elliott and his missionary endeavors, and God had laid on his heart that one day um, he and his young wife, they would go to Peru and be missionaries. Uh, In the years leading up to them getting ready to go do that, he got a job at a little church in Florida and every day, his uh, young new wife would bring him lunch, and they would eat together at the church. Uh, he had had a late night the night before; he had a church softball league, gotten in late, and then gotten up early, had a meeting at church. So Nadine had hardly seen him, and um, she decided, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna surprise him just a little early for lunch." Right? She packed up some chicken salad and took it down to the church, and um, at his uh, office door she could peer through and see that he was leaning down over the desk and she thought that sucker went out and played softball last night and he's tired he fell asleep at his desk middle of the day and so she snuck into the room and and, and came up and tried to surprise him and he didn't move and she she shook him and she called out his name and he didn't move he had had an undiagnosed heart issue and sitting there at his desk, just sitting still, 22 years old, had a heart attack and died instantaneously. And she's devastated. She said, I I went home that night, and my sister-in-law was there, and she walked into the room and sat down beside me. And she goes, I remember that moment explicitly because it was in that moment that I felt our baby kick for the first time. And just a few months later had a little girl named Lydia Uh, just to pay the bills she got a job as a teacher for a couple of years but in the back of her mind she kept saying you know God I feel like you've called me to go to Peru I feel like I'm supposed to go I feel like I'm supposed to do this thing and I I know my husband's gone and that sounds absolutely slam bang crazy but I'm going to go and so she took her just turned 4 year old daughter and they moved to Peru worked as a missionary teacher for a group of people who had given themselves over to gospel work in Peru. A couple of years later, this is just really a few years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, she moved to Albania, which was not only the poorest country in Europe at the time, it was uh, the country most saturated by the effects of communism. And she helped start an orphanage, and she called it the House of Laughter. Laughter. And just after the war in the Balkans had started to slow down, she started another orphanage in Kosovo. Just her and her daughter. Just the two of them. And I, I've told you, you're responsible to know a part in the name Nadine Hennessy, right? She'll never be a celebrity. She'll never be wealthy. They're not going to write books about her. They're not going to make movies about her life, right? Uh, There's never going to be a Nadine Hennessy study Bible. And I asked her one time. The whole group of us are sitting on the roof there. And it's in the evening, and all the kids had just been put to sleep in the orphanage in Albania. How did you do it? And she goes, oh, it's easy. I didn't. He did. Joseph for all of his accomplishments I think if you asked him how did you do it oh I didn't he did what do we learn about God God's in all of it who gave Joseph the dreams about himself God did who provided the interpretation God did who got him out of the pit God did Who got him a job with Potiphar? And when that job dissolved at the accusations of Potiphar's wife, who got him a place in a royal prison instead of death? God did. Who led a baker and a cupbearer with their own dreams to be interpreted? God did. Who gave Joseph the ability to interpret those dreams that one day he might be remembered? God did. Who sent into the deep slumber of pharaoh, A dream that would cultivate a changing of the ancient Near Eastern world God did and who interpreted those dreams and then out of that interpretation stand up in the plan of a providential God to organize the salvation of millions of those that he had made God did So, in believer things are disastrous for you personally who is there God is and when he has brought you through to the other side and you've been elevated to new heights of personal achievement and ecstasy who is there God is everything single day in every valley on every mountain God is there and if we will embrace that it is his plan according to his providence that we can do what we've been called to do then we like Joseph and Nadine and so many others have come before us how did you do it in the midst of all these peaks and valleys how did you do it Well, I wasn't alone. God was there. And I didn't do it. He did it. I was just pleased to live in the faithfulness that He provided me. Father, I pray this morning that in what we observe from your word and by the power of your spirit who works in our hearts, we might be found like Joseph and many, many others to be quietly obedient, rejecting every opportunity for self-aggrandizement, to glorify ourselves and make much of us, and instead to give you all the glory, recognizing your infinite presence in our lives, and that every good thing has been wrought by your providential hand.